Passage of this bill, I believe, is an investment in Alaska's future. In my opinion, this is the worst bill I've ever seen as a member of the legislature. Those vetoes, I think, are harmful to public education. I've learned one very strong thing is you don't always know people's motives. They appear to have a head-in-the-sand approach to budgeting. I'm disappointed. I'll be sending a letter today. We're in the governing business. We're not in the kicking-the-can business. Welcome to the Empty Office Podcast, which is a production of the office of Senator Lukey Gail Tobin. I'm Mike Mason. Senator Tobin and I decided to kick off Season 2 of the Empty Office Podcast with a discussion about equity, love, and religion. So our guest for this conversation is the Reverend Matt Schultz. Uh, Matt is a pastor at the First Presbyterian Church of Anchorage, and you might know Matt from his very well-written and thoughtful commentaries in the Anchorage Daily News on a variety of topics, including homelessness here in Anchorage. That's where I would like to begin. I actually looked at a, a commentary that you authored back in November, titled, In Fighting Anchorage Homelessness, Remember, We Are In This Together. And I pulled a quote, and I just want to read that for everybody. People are often outraged at the most ghoulish and garish effects of homelessness. Tent cities, crime, messes of every sort left in our public spaces, all of the visible signs and struggles that make up make us most uncomfortable. In that outrage, we can sometimes forget that homeless people are, first and foremost, people. They have hopes and regrets, fears and pride. They have parents, siblings, spouses, children. Frequently, they are children. Despite the stereotypes, they are typically not criminals. For the most part, they are people just like us, who only want a simple, decent place to live and work. They are not our enemy, they are ourselves. First of all, that is very well written, and that is a great sentiment. My question is, how should people with homes respond to homeless, the homelessness situation in the city of Anchorage? I'll start by telling you something I dislike, which is a bumper sticker. I dislike the bumper sticker that says, perform random acts of kindness. I really prefer that people engage in strategic and well-thought-out acts of kindness together in teamwork fashion. And that's what I recommend people do with homelessness is to, while maintaining that view of the humanity of every single person, including and particularly homeless people, viewing them extremely as individual human beings, we must act strategically as a community to say, how can we best lift them out of this? Now, no one's going to go out and fix homelessness by themselves, right? And so that means you join some sort of group that's doing it. Our church participates in lots of things such as the food bank. It's, you know, there's a, a comorbidity between extreme uh, difficulty finding food and uh, housing. That's one way. We have people that volunteer with the emergency cold weather shelter or any number of the different homelessness services in town like the, the Hope uh, Center, the Hope Soup Kitchen, the Gospel Rescue Mission, uh, Beans and Brother Francis. All those different things have volunteer programs in place. Get started with any one of them. They're all good. Learn as much as you can and most importantly, learn the names of the homeless people that you're serving. Senator Tobin, you actually represent an area that has a homelessness problem right now. Visible homelessness during the wintertime in Anchorage. How do we look and address this situation? That is not a simple answer <laughs> for a pretty straightforward question. And I often take directive from my own 
faith background, which is service above self, this, this concept that to know Christ is to be in service to one another. And it is imperative that we do it in a holistic and an orchestrated fashion so that we can maximize the benefit that will come from our works. I am so thankful for our faith-based partners because it's not just a city problem, it's not just a state problem, it's not just a local community problem, it's, it's all of us working in tandem to address all the different facets. Now, in the Fairview area, there are additional aspects that have created the, the systems and structures that we're in, whether it's the highway bifurcation that has really depressed property values and depressed economic activity, whether it's the fact that all of the houseless services have been concentrated in a very small footprint and the community has been asked to bear uh, a disordinate brunt of providing and supporting a community in crisis, in constant crisis, or whether it's the, the failure to recognize the economic conundrum of low wages or the lack of affordable housing or the failure to provide consistent public transit to particular areas where there are jobs and where there are opportunities and where there are medical services. I look at this and think about all of the roles and responsibility government has to create uh, a fertile environment for private and public partnerships and where we have been falling down in terms of providing reasonable timeframes for accessing SNAP benefits or providing the ability for private developers and some public institutions to create and sustain more public housing or affordable housing, where we haven't really invested in transportation modalities that allow for everyone to get where they need to go safely uh, without having to cross major highways. I am an advocate that it's a yes and. In all of these different policy discussions, we need everybody sitting at the table talking about their role and where there might be gaps and where we need to fill them in with government services. How do you respond when you hear people say things like, these people need to get a job, or they just need to pull themselves up by their bootstraps? I'd say first, let's buy them some boots so then maybe they can try that. Um, it, it makes me so mad. Um, I'm, I'm not a violent person by nature or by profession, but when I hear that kind of statement, I get extremely angry. It's a certain amount of victim blaming and victim shaming, and it neglects the very real truth that you were sort of alluding to a moment ago, that there are so many systemic factors that cause people to fall into homelessness, systemic factors that prevent them from getting out of homelessness. And so many of the homeless individuals and families that we work with on a daily basis are employed. They're working. They are pulling on their bootstraps just as hard as they possibly can. And it, that's not the problem. That's not the cause of this. And I know some real wealthy people that also happen to be pretty darn lazy sometimes you know it's not a question of effort it's a question of how is the overall system functioning like a river and sometimes you get caught in a current that pushes you beyond where you're able to stay above water have you ever found yourself in a position where you were on the verge of homelessness or you thought yeah oh man one bad thing and here i go i would say twice um once my wife and i very very smartly put our house on the market in the summer of 2008 and the whole global housing market crashed and we were deep, deep, deep in debt. And two factors kept us okay. One was we had family that supported us. 
And two was, I won $100,000 on a game show who wants to be a millionaire. <laughs> and so that really helps. That's a good financial tip for y'all if you're looking for a way out of uh, poverty. And then a second time, we lost our jobs, both of us at the same time due to strange circumstances. And again, we had family that was able to care for us. When I see people on the street, I think, not even there but for the grace of God go I, because I don't think God is causing these things. I think there but for the grace of my family, who provided us a couch to crash on for six months. If not for that, I would be in that spot myself. I think about a meme that I've seen recently that says, it's not that you made good choices, it's that mm -hmm. you had good choices. Yeah. And I often think about this in my, my own financial journey. I have always had access to good choices. Yeah. I have a family that provides a safety net. And so the times that I have been living paycheck to paycheck or missed a payment for a bill or wasn't able to make rent, there was a safety net that I was able to fall back on. Mm -hmm. I think about the experiences I've had in the medical system where I looked at the bill at the end of it and thought, well, how am I going to pay this? But because of my education and my affluence with where I've come from and where I'm going, I've been able to negotiate a right. better payment system and structure. I think about my time serving in the Peace Corps where you're functionally poor as a Peace Corps volunteer. That's the point, is that you don't earn a living wage. And coming home and being able to move back in with my father mm -hmm. and knowing that that space existed because if it wasn't there, I wouldn't have any place to go. These are all things that I look at when I consider what is that, that piece that we often say uh, that creates or sustains homelessness and houselessness, and it really is the lack of the ability to make a good choice. People don't want to be houseless or homeless. People don't want to be struggling to survive. The systemic inequities we have in our system take away their ability to make a good choice. I find it challenging sometimes to not, well, just me as a human being, I, I judge people. I, I'm working on it, I'm trying to get better, but I judge people. How do we, and, and I see people when, when they interact with homelessness and you look at someone and you judge them. And how do we, how do we get beyond judgment and go into something that is very religious which is forgiveness. Uh, do you want to go first? I didn't oh, want to jump you know, I, well, I just think about like one of the tenets of the faith I grew up in is this idea of being radically welcoming, of accepting people where they are at and being authentic in your love for them. And there is a check that you have to do within yourself. I will not pretend like I don't immediately judge people or I don't have an assumption that I make or I don't impugn their motives for the actions that they're taking. But I am thankful that I have friends and family and colleagues who put me back on the right path. And that is a fundamental aspect of my faith, is that my, my faith believes in baby baptism. And the, the idea is that you are promising to help keep that person on the pathway, the, the path of righteousness. You can't walk it alone. You can't stay on it alone. And you definitely can't bear the burden of it alone. That is what a community is created for. And that's why you have your church community to keep you and remind you of what is the goal, which is to love thy neighbor authentically and holistically with no caveat. There, there's no asterisk at the end of that. 
Reverend? And I would say coming out of the, while we're on the topic of homelessness to go into forgiveness, I just want to clarify that the homeless are not in need of forgiveness any more than anybody else is. And so the the response to interacting with a homeless person is not to say, I forgive you. Um, the, The one that would be asking for forgiveness would be myself. I'm living in a place of comfort and plenty. So I should be saying, I'm sorry, perhaps I didn't give you enough. And our systems we're sorry we have kept so much for the people on top and not enough to create roads for you to to come out of of homelessness that's where the forgiveness is required so i wouldn't be offering forgiveness i'd be seeking it what about the judgment part of it like many people in anchorage every single day when i go downtown and open up our building there are people sleeping out front nine times out of ten they're lovely people we have a good conversation when i can i offer them something once in a while, I get the guy that's made a giant mess, refuses to clean it up, every manner of mess you want to imagine. Um, I've had people get violent with me. There are times when it's your typical Monday morning atmosphere in my own head, and someone is there, and my initial thought is, ah, oh, geez, i got to deal with this again. Right? I think that's just human nature, and it takes um, sometimes... Sometimes our souls are tuned to it in such a way that we look at them and we say, well, your soul and my soul are connected by, by God and by the way the universe functions, and therefore I love you, and it's easier some days. Other days, I'm just in a more selfish mindset, and it takes more effort to overcome that and remind myself that Jesus said, whenever you fed that person, you fed me. Whenever you housed that person, you housed me. Um, sometimes faith is a natural inclination sometimes it's an uphill climb i want to move on to something that senator tobin and i have been working quite a bit on and that is protections for lgbtq people Mm -hmm. and it is a subject that is somewhat new to me and i have been amazed at how judgmental people are so let's talk about religion and the intersection with lgbtq persons Well, the intersection is we're all human beings, and so people who are LGBTQ deserve 100% love and acceptance and inclusion. In particular, with the work of Christians for Equality, we recognize the fact that the reason gay people are persecuted in the U.S. is because the church has created that condition. When I say the church, I mean the broad umbrella. You know, um, you mentioned the Methodist Church. I'm part of the Presbyterian Church. Our two denominations are much, much more accepting than some others. And so we're acknowledging the fact that, in a global sense, Christianity has done a great deal of harm to gay people. And so it's our responsibility to step forward and say no. When Christians for Equality was being formed, before I arrived in Anchorage, it was during what they call the Summer of Hate, when there was legislation in Anchorage uh, designed to just harm gay people. I forget the specifics of the bill, but Christians for Equality formed as a way to give voice to the fact that that is not, quote-unquote, the Christian view. That's the view of a certain sect of Christianity. The current statistics show that it's a, a minority the vast majority of Christians in the U.S. support gay inclusion and equality. Um, But that summer they came together, and it's not just Christians. We also have um, members of the Jewish faith and other faiths participating. And they reached out to the rabbi at Congregation Beth Shalom at that time, his name, Michael Obluth, and they said, should we change this name to show that it's inclusive? And Rabbi Obluth, uh, Obluth said very wisely, no, you need to reclaim that word from the hateful legislation being put out there. You need to show that Christians stand in in support of our gay siblings. 
Senator Tobin, I mean, I know this is a passion thing for you. I've seen you in tears. I mean, we've had interviews with, with, with you know, members of the press talking about these issues and, and some of the things that happened in the, in the last legislative session. What is the intersection between religion and, and LGBTQ persons? And, and how do we right this wrong that the, that the Reverend was talking about? I can't speak for, for all folks of Christian faith. I can speak for my own journey in this, and much of it comes from lived experience. My mother came out when I was very young. My sister met her wife when I was in the Peace Corps. I have a cousin who will be visiting us this session in Juneau who is trans. It is the the journey that my family has been on and the the things that we have learned about what does it mean to be a true Christian that I recognize we start from a place of of failure of, of falling down and it's only by the grace of God that we are able to realize and recognize that there is more to this plane of knowing and being than any of us any one of us can realize or recognize or actualize it takes opening up the way that we believe in what love is and what community creates and is possible. My aunt is the lead of her Catholic church in becoming more accepting and loving, and I am so <laughs> jazzed about what has been coming out of this Pope's mouth. Yeah, yeah. I think about the journey that the Methodist church has been on and the split that has been occurring and the, the discussions that have been happening. I think about the pastor of my home who performed his first equitable marriage and the experiences he had with the pushback and the blowback and seeing that that is not Christ-like. That is not what it means to love each other with our whole authentic hearts. And I cannot say that I started this journey in the place that I am at today and I will not end this journey at the place that I'm at today. Hmm. But I do know that I am walking the righteous path because I love everyone as their true authentic selves and I want them to be and be welcomed as their true authentic selves. I also recognize that what we think we know is so small comparative to the, the ways and the omnipotence of God. I have a good friend of mine who has been ordained in Pittsburgh and I asked him the question, is God gendered? And he looked at me and said, well, that's a very long conversation, and there's lots of theological debate, but the answer is no. There you go. I was going to say, I could answer real quick. Yeah, the answer is no. And I was like, oh, good. Well, then I feel like I'm in a good space. Because I know that to be true. And that's the part that I think sometimes gets mixed up with all of this and gets convoluted in all of this, is that people have these convictions that aren't rooted in what the teachings of Christ are. They have these convictions that have been bastardized version to con contain and to concentrate power and to have the haves and the have-nots and the powerful and the powerless. My faith is not rooted in oppression. My faith is rooted in love and inclusion and full acceptance. That's awesome. And that should always be the lens we're reading scripture through or looking at our traditions through is... In, in the expression of it, now that we've talked about these issues and looked at the policies, blah, 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 in the end, does it look like love? And if not, then we got to go back to formula and figure out what we got wrong because it, we're, we've reached the end of this and now we're saying, oh, for some reason now 10% of our high school kids are excluded from what we were just talking about. So take it back, try again, and go through another way because if it's not love, it's not Christ and it's not scripture and it's not God. 
You mentioned love. So in, in talking to uh, LGBTQ people and in, in reading about these issues and, and, and being involved in it through working for Senator Tobin, I'm amazed that people are not, pe- LGBTQ people are not more angry than mm-hmm. they are mm-hmm. and that they are not more vengeful, perhaps, about all of this. And I and I and I and I, I'm going to be a little personal here and go back to, I, I I went to a school with a guy, I guarantee he was gay, guaranteed, but it was simply not allowed. It was not allowed in my hometown, and I don't know where this guy is, but I wonder if he is angry about the situation he found himself in, and how do you, how do how does how do you deal with with people that have perhaps a right to be angry, but you still want to transition them towards love. I don't want to speak for folks who identify as queer because I am in a very different place in how I love and who I love, but I don't necessarily identify in that way. What I will say from the perspective of being a black woman and watching my mother fight that battle as well as fight the battle to be her true self and love who she wants to love, is that much of the movement that we have been privileged to be a part of has been rooted in nonviolence. And if you convert your oppression to oppressing others through anger and through violence, you've lost. You, you lose the ability to, ch- to be welcoming and to change hearts and minds. And so there have been times where I have called my mother in fits and tears and anger and want to just wildly like haymake my fists at someone. And she reminds me that if we lose the high ground, if we, if we lash out, we're not going to be able to sustain the fight because we'll have expended all the energy and we will no longer be in the dialogue because folks will dismiss us. The, the idea of inclusion and being radically welcoming and being loving means everybody, even those who do the worst harm to you. Reverend Schultz, what do you think about the, the, my thoughts there about people being angry and okay. how you how you yeah. transition them to well I think you said it beautifully and I think my initial role as a pastor in that case would be to listen to the anger and hear it and honor it sometimes anger is exactly the appropriate emotion in a moment if someone has experienced some type of oppression and they come to me and they're raging about it I just I just hear the rage for a while eventually yeah it comes time to transform it and that often comes with time. I don't have the power to switch it on and off for somebody else. They'll they'll reach that on their own over time. And so I do my best to keep with them through um, opportunities to express their rage and ask them what their preferred path forward is. Nine times out of 10, they're looking for a peaceful way. They're looking for some way to transform it because the, the future we build is going to be made in the image of the emotions we bring to it, right? And kind of like you were saying, if we're going at this as a way to say, I love the future generations enough to hand a beautiful world off to them, we're going to create something beautiful. If we're going into this saying, I hate the other side so much that I'm going to kick the crap out of them, we're going to hand our future generations that kind of world that's built on anger and animosity. And so we we need to be keeping an eye on that uh, beloved community that we're hoping to achieve. And that, that means we have to achieve it in the beloved way. So uh, one of the things that I want to, to delve a little bit into is politics. Uh, Senator Tobin has found herself right smack dab in the middle of politics. It's weird. It's like I ran for office or something. Exactly. <laughs> and, and, you know, I've been in, uh, with the legislature since 2014 and, mm-hmm. in, you know, in politics. 
what's your interaction with politics, uh, Matt? Um, I mean, I know you have to talk to politicians. You probably, yeah. probably, politicians probably even call you up occasionally and ask you uh, questions, that kind of thing. You're like dabbing your toe in because you also serve on your local community council. It's, yeah, and it's not really my local one, but it's uh, I work with the Covenant House, and because they're in downtown, I'm on the downtown community council. And yeah, I've never been involved in politics before moving to Anchorage in 2013, and I sort of have stumbled backwards into it as is my way and um, it, I interact with politics because I'll quote uh, Desmond Tutu probably somewhat inaccurately but he said we can only pull bodies out of the water so many times before we go upstream and ask why they keep falling in right and so we we have the issues we see and we all love providing a meal to someone in need we love trying to provide overnight shelter to someone who's homeless and you do that two or three times and it feels lovely and you do it 10 times and you start getting a little tired and you do it a hundred times and you think, wait a minute, this keeps happening over and over again. How can we change this? The answer is in politics. The answer is in our shared public policies and what we do with that. And so that's how I've started getting involved in some ways. I also happen to serve a church that is very politically engaged and has a lot of church members who are politically engaged. And so that is a big part of it. Funny turn of events, my wife served in Governor Walker's administration and so we got together with family and it was a contentious year 2016 and uh we made the rule at this family gathering let's not talk about religion or politics and elizabeth and i were like well, that, all right that leaves us out of every conversation <laughs> <laughs> do you find uh that uh, the politicians use religion as a tool and do politicians sometimes use that tool inappropriately uh yes and yes and i will say using Religion as a tool isn't necessarily bad, right? Because um, I will gladly proclaim to our politicians that we have a responsibility to serve the poor. We have a responsibility to provide housing for those who are homeless. And I'll say many other things like that. And I'm rooting all of those opinions of mine, not only in statistics and what's worked in other places, but also in my understanding of scripture and my faith tradition. So I think it's okay to you might call it using religion as a tool, I would say, to to acknowledge the religious views of our world and to say, this is a lens we're all looking through, so how can we perceive the problems around us and find a solution that, that is, you know, has religion as a part of it? And so I think that's fine. When you start twisting that to use religion to harm others, as we said before, the ultimate hermeneutic has to be our lens of love. And if we're going through and making a policy, and at the end of the process, what we have is a situation that's causing queer kids to commit suicide at an extraordinarily high rate, we did that. And if they're twisting religion to cause the policies that cause that, then that's a misuse of it. And I will, uh, I'll, I'll have words with those folks. Can I lean in on a question? What do you think the appropriate space between government and religion is? Oh, man, that's probably always shifting and moving. Uh, I think uh, Dr. King said that religion is not the master of the state, nor is it the servant of the state. It's the conscience of the state. So we should always be a bit to the side, right? Um, I, I would never want to author legislation, but I could certainly um, uh, sing about it a lot and hopefully guide people's minds as they're writing that policy. And I could you know, do the same. I'm not allowed to endorse candidates, really, but I've helped candidates um, talk through their perspectives on things. So um, I've had certain, you know, elected officials contact me to say, will you pray for me because I have a hard decision coming up? And, um, and this is people on both sides of the aisle. And I'm just always 
amazed, I find it so beautiful to see them struggling with their decision in that way, right? And so I do try to influence the decision because I'm a human being and I say you should, you should move your decision toward compassion. Um, they don't always go the way I hope they will, but I really, really honor and respect that, that wrestling match that they have. So I am a, uh, a, a big fan of speech writing. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I've written a bunch of speeches for, I've written speeches for Senator Tobin and, and other people. And uh, growing up, despite the fact that I am an unbeliever, uh, I used to watch the the Sunday uh, preaching shows, essentially. Oh, really? <laughs> and you would you would you would hear like I mean I remember watching Jimmy Swaggart on television and oh, my condolences. Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> uh, uh, there was a I think he's still around. Hagee, uh, anyway. And I all, think he is. All of these these I people, and so some really amazing orators. Yes. Speakers that uh, you know. I mean, we could we could go through Martin Luther King, all sorts of other people that have used the pulpit to change people. Mm-hmm. For the good, for the bad, whatever. But they have used the languages. So when I want to talk about like how preparing a a, a, a sermon. Yeah. So like, do you like do you follow a pattern? How do you, or do you, do you focus on like Man, like previous it. other people? Like how do you yeah. how do you how do you how do you use language to move people to where you want them to be or where you think they should be? All right, so you're asking a lot of questions, and I can nerd out on this stuff for like an hour and a half. Just cut me off when I've gone on too long. But it's a beautiful and wonderful art of writing, and it's a it's a very different art to write for the page and to write for the ear. And it's a very different art to write for the general public or to write for my congregation. I rarely, if ever, write a sermon for my congregation in which I'm trying to move them toward a thing. It's much more, let's all of us enter into this space where we're together seeking God's guidance. And they frequently guide me. There are members of my church that have been faithful Christians for much longer than I have, and I love to learn from their example. I learn from their example, and I do my best to articulate that to the congregation in the next Sunday sermon. So that, you know, it depends on the audience. You got to know who you're preaching to or speaking to or writing for and why. Writing for the paper, I love to wordsmith. I like to get every single word in just the right spot. I overuse commas on purpose and I love getting at least one semicolon into each thing that I write. Don't know why, I just dig it. And then, um, but for a Sunday morning sermon or a speech that I might give in other settings, I leave room for it to breathe. I like to underwrite and go from a very, very loose outline so that it's much more like this conversation where I've, no offense, where I've prepared literally nothing. And so I like to show up and just speak from the heart and in the moment. You know, like Mozart wrote the best music ever, right? But most people don't have Mozart on their daily playlist they're listening to because he's from a different era. He's ages ago. There's a reason the top 40 changes every single week because the moment matters and there's a spark and a soul to the right now. And that's where the sermon has to be. Uh, the old the old chestnut says you have to preach with uh, the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other, right? Now they're both on your phone, so you have you know two phones going maybe, but it's all got to be current and in the moment. So when it comes to who do I look to, I think you mentioned like how do I model it, um, improv comedy is kind of where I go to stand-up comedians, particularly in the improv moment of maybe doing crowd work or even those those games where they're like, all right, give me a situation, and you speak to that because it's it's in the process of 
being true to where you are and who you are and saying yes and and finding the, the, the light in that. And do you find that politicians and preachers are somewhat similar in the way that they use language, in the way they use vocal patterns, in the way they they try to to get people to, to rally around something and go somewhere? Definitely. Yeah. And there's, you know, there's the dark side of the forest and the light side of the forest too that I've seen people do that as preachers and as politicians in ways that are beautiful and loving and kind and that build up the world and just the opposite. You know, you see people can use that skill to, to a very evil end. Um, I'm very fortunate that my wife, who I mentioned before, was in the world of politics. Um, she's also an ordained Presbyterian minister, Elizabeth is, and to have a colleague right by my side throughout my entire ministry keeps me on that right track, right? It's like it, even during a sermon sometimes I can see her very, very subtly shake her head no. <laughs> the, the person in the pew behind her probably didn't notice, but I'm like, okay, all right, so dial that one back a little bit. You know, so it helps to have these um, road signs, north stars to guide by as we're going through these things to make sure we're not, we're not overstepping our bounds of what we're supposed to, to do. And of course, the very nature of being humble, part of our faith is to be humble. And there are times, I'm sure you encounter this on a daily basis, it's hard to be the one with the microphone in your face and stay humble. And it's hard to be the one who has studied this stuff so in depth and then hear some guy shout out, yeah, but what if we just buy them all one-way plane tickets, right? And you're like, no, that's the wrong way. And I know because I've been studying this for so long and so in depth, it's hard not to yell at them. Yeah. And so when it comes time to talk about LGBTQ stuff, for example, someone's inevitably going to stand up and say, yeah, but doesn't the Bible say it's a sin? And I'm like, no, it really, really doesn't. And trust me, I've got two master's degrees in this stuff. It doesn't. And I can explain to you why if you're willing to learn. And then they say, no, you serve Satan and they're gone. Right. And so it's hard not to get too big for my britches and want to shut people's opinions down because the microphone's in my face and I've got the, the degrees and the experience. Um, and so it's a constant return to prayer. You know, you pray on your knees figuratively or symbolically to say, I'm gonna be humble right now in this moment and, and not be that arrogant person. I am beyond alarmed by the QAnon stuff. Yeah and the intersection with religion. We hear examples across the country of QAnon and, and other crazy ways that religion is being used to harm people. How do you deal with it? How do, how do, you, how do you look at it and say, they are the same believer as I am? Well, they're not, for yeah. one thing. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> they're, they're not. I mean, that's the, the fundamental part. And I'm not saying that I have the corner on this is how you should be a Christian or this is what being a Christian looks like. But I do know that it has taken me till I'm not going to say my age, but it's north of 40. Where you just won an award for... for I did. For, for <laughs> I eked out on the line on that award. Uh but one of the things that has been intriguing in this journey has been I spent time as an atheist. I've spent time as an agnostic. I have spent time as someone who was considering and very close to converting to Islam. And in this journey, I have realized that if you are not on the path to actualizing what is the true embodiment of God's love, then you are, you are not practicing the faith that is that of Christ, of that of, of our Father. 
And if you were not actively questioning and seeking out counsel and being in, inquisitive about how this looks like in the applicable sense, then you are missing the boat. And I struggle with some of the faiths that take a particular interpretation of the Bible that we can have a long conversation about how the Bible is canonized and what's included and what is the different translation theories of each different version and which church uses what version. But you take this hard copy and say, well, this is the truth. This is the only way of knowing. And you don't put it into context. You don't put it into cultural lens. You don't talk about what is the other interpretation or the historical narratives of who was Paul and where was Paul and what was Paul doing and why is Paul saying these things in these moments, then you're missing the point. The point is to fellowship with others and practice this learning of what does it mean to be Christ-like. And I very much struggle with the hard and fast, this is what it means to be Christian, this is how you are Christian, and it is rooted in discrimination, hate, and idolatry. I think of what's going on in Texas about the Ten Commandments in the classroom, and it is horrific to me that there are Christians out there who are saying that will help bring us back to being Christ-like, in which I look and say, I am not going to be staring at this list of Ten Commandments and thinking that replaces what does it mean to be a practicing Christian. That is horrific to me. Same here. We're going to have a big agreement party because I think that was beautifully said and I agree with just about all of that. And when they're going to put the Ten Commandments up, I've seen many people say this, why don't we also put up the hundreds and hundreds of times that they that the Bible preaches uh, justice for the poor, right? Why don't we put up all the times that it calls for an end to war and to lift up peace? So no one's saying let's put those in the classroom for some reason, just these this weird list of ten um, when there were way, way more than Ten Commandments. Um, with the QAnon thing, I think it's frustrating. And again, this it, I apologize if I get too far out in the weeds, but I do think that there is a, a sad tendency in institutional religion for the leadership to focus on institutional preservation rather than the pursuit of truth. And I think your uh, uh, nod toward growth and curiosity is beautiful, right? Uh, I don't know if you're Ted Lasso fans, but you know, be, be curious, not judgmental, should be written on every church, right? And if that curiosity leads someone out of my church, it's sad to me because I love their company, but I send them off with joy and love and I'll give them a few books to help them on their way uh, of that continued growth. Now, like any church leader, I am concerned about our budget and how to care for our building and how to keep the institution alive, but not at the cost of people's growth. And if someone's personal growth, wherever they're following God, leads them out of our church, all we can do is celebrate that they ever were with us and make sure they're safe on the journey ahead. I think churches that don't do that, churches that instead say, no, you have to stay here, they start putting blockades on growth. And they start saying, you're going to grow just into a little version of me and nothing else and no more. And anyone that starts to blossom outside of this little restrictive square, we're going to call them bad and somehow apostate and going beyond the, the borders. Um, you familiar with Piaget's um, uh, psychological stages of growth and, and development? There's a parallel function within faith development by uh, Fowler, and you get up to about number three, and it's all based on rule following and fitting in with your initial group, right? And that's where a lot of church structures cut you off. I say, good enough, because where you are right now, you're paying our bills and you're making our numbers look good in attendance. So please don't grow beyond that. But there's 
there's also stages four, five, six, seven, right? But some people never get that far because of the institution that is supposed to be fueling their curiosity and wonder and awe and growth and joy in the world is instead lopping that off and saying, no more, you're done. That drives me crazy. And I think it's situations like that that give birth to things like QAnon, that people haven't learned to think for themselves over time. And so it just takes one person in that little realm to say, hey, do your own research and blah, blah, blah. And then you end up with these, these, this madness that is so detached from reality. My final question is, and this is going to be very simple, how do you deal with unbelievers? How do you deal with someone like me? If my grandmother didn't convert me to Christianity, uh-huh. you're not going to do it. So how do you deal with me? I just love it, man. Okay. My brother is an atheist, and I tend to try to just imagine he's always in the room with me. And if I say anything that would make him feel unloved, then then I have failed. And uh, I'm not going to save anyone's soul, and it's not my job to. And God loves them, so I don't have to. God has already taken care of all the saving and the loving. And... Um, my job is just to be as kind as I can and to help each person grow in the way that they feel they should. I want to just add one last thing, and I want to ask about the future of Anchorage. Um, oh, okay, I will predict it for you. Well, I don't really want. I don't. <laughs> it's going to be snowing. I don't really want to <laughs> throw that out there. I don't really want a prediction, but do you? Are you confident that things are going to get better? Yeah. Are you confident things are going to get better, Senator Tobin, in Anchorage? Yes. We've got great people who are fighting for a better, more inclusive, more loving Anchorage. And I look around the room and I know that I'm not alone. I know that I'm not fighting the good fight by myself, that there are folks who are doing the work on the ground and the service with their hands and keeping the system operating and working as efficiently as possible. And my job is to give them voice and to give them support and to give them love and to keep moving us forward. Democracy is messy. It's, it's going to have fits and starts and it's going to go up and down and left and right. But we are so much farther along today than we were 50 years ago or 100 years ago. And mm-hmm. I've shared this already, but I just keep thinking about me. I Look at me. I'm here in this room. I'm a woman. I am mixed race. I have multiple degrees. I have the opportunity to walk and drive and vote and to be my own person. And you put me 100 years ago, and I would mm. have very little of the things that I have today. And I get to be married to the man that I love who's a white dude, which was illegal in most places a hundred years ago. Hmm. So there's, there's beauty in the fight that we have continued to sustain and that we will continue to sustain. I have hope that tomorrow is going to be better than today. And I know it's going to be better because of the people in this room and the people who are fighting for the good things in this state. So one of the things you do have is a vote in the Alaska State Legislature. And that leads me to my question, uh, Reverend Schultz. Mm-hmm. The question I've been asking everybody if you could choose one person, dead or alive, they get a vote, you get to drop them into the Alaska State Legislature to help us out, who would that be? Boy, oh boy. So, I am going to go with Al. No last name given. Um, he died this year while experiencing homelessness in Anchorage. And I think as uh, no, not wanting to cast any aspersions on our legislators, but I do think that, um, and th- this 
description goes to me as well. They tend to be people who are doing okay, right? Like we're not, you and I are not struggling to find ways to get food and shelter. And over time that creates a certain patience with the hardships that are faced by some. And I think for Al to wield his wheelchair in there and address the legislature and say, this is why I died this year. Um, I think that uh, has an impact. Like I said, frequently, um, just about every day, we have people sleeping on our church property. Al was among them. And sometimes sleeping, sometimes just joining us for the worship services. And the, the issue of homelessness becomes the people of homelessness when you have daily interactions with them and learn their names and grow to love them over time. Uh, Reverend Matt Schultz, thank you so much for joining us today. You have been listening to the Empty Office podcast, which is a production of the Office of Senator Lukey Giltobin. You can listen to and subscribe to the podcast on Substack, Spotify, and the Apple Podcast app. And if you like what you hear, please leave a positive review that will help spread the word. My name is Mike Mason. Please be safe out there.